We bring the news. We bring the action. We bring it live. This is 101.9 High FM. And this is Stephen Kravitz. It's People of the Book. And we've got a full show for today. It's the 30th of June. It's cold day outside, so it's perfect book weather. We're going to start off with a book that I finished in the course of the week. It's the new David Grossman novel, A Horse Walks Into a Bar. It came out in Hebrew, Sus Nichnas Le Bar, and uh, it was translated into English by Jessica Cohen. And it just very recently won the International Man Booker Award. The Booker Prize is a well-known prize. It's one of the most prestigious English um, English literary English uh, prizes. And over the course of the last few years, the prize has undergone quite a change, quite an evolution. The main Booker Prize is handed out in October. Uh, it used to be just for books written in English in Britain and the Ireland and the Commonwealth, former Commonwealth countries. And two years ago, it was expanding to include uh, American writers as well. Then the International Man Booker Prize used to be handed out every two years and generally to acknowledge a whole body of work, not an individual novel. But that's also changed. And for the last two years, the International Man, Man Booker Prize, which generally uh, recognizes excellent fiction that's translated into English from its original language. For the last two years, this International Man, Book, Man Booker Prize has been awarded to a single novel, not a whole body of work. This year, two of the six shortlisted finalists were Israeli. Amos Oz's uh, latest book in English, Judas, and David Grossman's latest book, A Horse Walks Into a Bar, were two of the six finalists, which is quite an achievement for a small country in the Middle East to have two finalists in the International Man Booker shortlist. And then on the 14th of June, when the when the, the the winner was announced, it was David Grossman who won for this book, A Horse Walks Into a Bar. And David Grossman is a he's, he's one of Israel's most celebrated contemporary novelists. He's also the best-selling author of numerous novels that have been translated into 36 languages. Um, his previous novel was called To the End of the Land and that's it was an epic epic uh, novel, Israeli novel that um, follows Ora, a mother whose son has just been sent to the army and um, she she has a premonition that he's he's, he's He's being killed, and she just she doesn't want to be present when they bring that news to her. It's almost that magical thinking that if you're not there when the message comes, it hasn't happened. And it was a very powerful and moving novel. He also wrote Falling Out of Time, and uh, also I think it's called Yellow Cart, which is a book he wrote in nineteen in the late nineteen eighties about the Palestinians living in. Uh, in the West Bank 
that's become quite that's become quite a famous book as well. Uh, as an Israeli author, David Grossman is part of the left-leaning liberal elite of Israel. His books are very well received overseas, uh, or I suppose Israel in abroad. Um, but in, within Israel, he he's quite critical of the Netanyahu government. And uh, I suppose what you say, right-wing nationalists don't take to his books that well. But having said all of that, Horse Walks Into Bar is an, it's not a political novel. It's a very human novel. And as the title sets the book up, it's about a stand-up comic. It's about a man who's called Dovala G., uh, Dov Greenstein, he's 57 years old, and the whole novel takes place in the course of one night in a comedy club in Natanya, where he gives the performance of his life. And that performance involves not the jokes that the audience have come to hear, but him sharing his laugh, his, the defining moments in his laugh uh, with his audience. And it's it's the act of a man self-destructing on stage uh, where people have come to hear his comedy, but he gives them his life story. And we, the reader, are pulled in almost as voyeurs into this person's absolute hell of a life where he scaffolds his story with very crude jokes and with a lot of aggression on the stage. And David Grossman slowly peels away the levels of Dovala G's life to get to that inner kernel of his authentic self. This is the International Man Booking, the man, the International Man Booker Prize winning novel of 2017. David Grossman's A Horse Walks Into a Bar. We'll finish up this novel just after this ad break. From talk to music, from Johannesburg to Israel, from sport to business, this is 101.9 High FM. This is People of the Book. I'm looking at a book called The Horse Walks Into a Bar by David Grossman. Two weeks ago, it won the International Man Booker Prize. So that's an Israeli author who is making waves all around the English-speaking literary world. His books have been translated into... 36 languages to date and this book it's not so much an Israeli book it really transcends specific the specific society and the specific culture of Israel it's a story of Dovala G who's a stand-up comic who's giving the performance of his life but it's not a comedic performance he's sharing the most painful experiences of his life with his audience uh, in the audience is a person that he personally phoned up a few weeks in advance and invited Avishar Lazar to come and watch his performance. Avishar is a retired judge who couldn't even remember his childhood, his very slight childhood friendship with Dovala G. But while he's sitting there, uh, together with you, the reader, experiencing excruciating uncomfortableness in the presence of a man self-destructing, he starts to reconstruct Dovala G's life and 
where his role in this whole narrative fits in. Uh, it's a very, very powerful book. It's, 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 it's literature, so it's not an easy read from, from cover to cover. It's a challenging read. But David Grossman has the power to create such intense emotional experiences for you as the reader. And at the same time, not only is Dovila G on the stage, but if David Grossman's writing a book and his main character, the person who's bearing his, his inner soul to his audience is called Dovila G, it also makes you think of David Grossman as well. And David Grossman is exposing himself. He's exposing his inner thoughts. He's exposing his authentic self to you, the reader. And just like the judge becomes a witness to the comedian's life, you, the reader, become a participant in sharing David Grossman's beliefs, his life, his, his, the stories that he has to share. And within the comedy of the book, which is very, very biting, he deals with so many things. You almost have to be Jewish and to a degree identify with Israel to get the humor. It's, but, but, but the story, the story transcends any nationality or any, or any society. It's a very, very powerful book. I know there might be some people who like a lot of the audience during the course of the night. They just get up and they leave because they came to wash their hair from the hardship and trauma of life in Israel. And here they get uh, even more, even more difficult things to deal with. So some people might start reading the book and think that it's, it's not, this is not, what they they bargained for. They wanted an entertaining read. But if you're going to read David Grossman, you have to be ready for the challenge. It is high literature. You have to be ready to be manipulated by an author at the absolute peak of his talents. You have to be ready to go through an emotional roller coaster where your revulsion for the main character at the beginning results in an absolute understanding of a person's life where the power of the narrative opens the light to redemption. So that's A Horse Walks Into a Bar by David Grossman, published by Jonathan Cape. It is available in the shops at the moment. He is an Israeli author who's extremely um, celebrated uh, around the world for his extremely powerful novels. Now, the next book we're going to look at is something very, very, very different. Campus novels, the campus novel is a genre in its own right. Um, and there's so many different aspects to campus novels, university campus novels. You get the ones which center on the students. Uh, then you get the ones that center on the running of the campus. You get the campus novels that take themselves too seriously. You get the ones that use humor in order to show you what life in academia is like. When it comes to the campus novels, the one in my mind that sticks out from the mid-90s as almost the definitive story of what life is like on a campus is Jane Smiley's Moo. M-O-O, sit on a upper Midwestern university. It's very funny, but it shows you the politics behind the scenes. And now we've got an update to that book. This is a, bo a book called The Devil and Webster. It's by Jean Hamph Correlitz, published by Faber and Faber. It's also available in the shops at the moment. And it's a great, great university novel. Now, 
Living in South Africa, where our universities every year go through the turmoil of fees must fall, and now we've started dealing with uh, the, 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 the issues of decolonized education. And there's always this need to protest and this need to be heard. So it's actually quite refreshing to read a novel set in America where a lot of these issues are also coming to the fore. This novel is set on a university, a liberal arts campus in um, in New England, and the, the university is called Webster, Webster University, Webster College, Webster College. Webster College has a long history. It was started in the 1700s originally to educate American Indians, and over time it became just one more um, very white uh, and uh, elite university. But starting from the post-war years, the well, the 1960s, the universities moved to become very inclusive, to have a, a, a big a, uh, big departments looking at gender issues and Indian issues and minority issues. It's a, a, a very modern liberal arts university, and it's just as difficult to get into, even more difficult than the Ivy Leagues, which incidentally, um, there's a great movie called um, Admission starring Tina Fey and Lily Tomlin, which is a filmed version of the author Jean Hanf Korolitz's book Admissions. Uh, so she really knows universities and she knows the Ivy Leagues and she knows the process of getting into universities. And she puts that into this book as well. But what the devil and Webster really revolves around is the new, well, she's been there for about 10 years. The, the new chancellor, the new head of the university is a woman named Naomi. Um, Naomi, Naomi is a very, very ardent protester and she's a feminist scholar. She is exactly what academia in America, liberal academia in America, she's the embodiment of liberal academia in America. And she always participated in, 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 in protests when she was in university. And now there's uh, no difference. She's proud of Webster's tradition of protest and the all-inclusiveness, and she's moving towards encouraging more American Indians to enroll in the university, and she wants to set up an, an American, in, there's already an American Indian center, and she wants to create an alumni association. And now, in the middle of all of this, a new protest arises on campus, and there's a famous uh, open quad in the middle of a garden grass area grassed area in the middle of the campus with a tree stump it's called the stump that's where all the protests happen and now there's a new protest and she very good naturedly supports the students right to protest and encourages them to come and speak to her but they don't want to speak to her but the protest grows and in 21st century student life when a protest occurs you don't go straight to the the the, the 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 chancellor or the 
the, the, the dean of the university. You go straight to social media and the American TV channels and every other possible media outlet that you can to put your message across. We have a protest on an American liberal arts college that starts to go out of control. This is the book. It's The Devil and Webster by Gene Hanf Korolitz. We'll finish off this review straight after this ad break. The best part of your day. At the heart of your community. All the talk. All the music. All the news. Hi, FM. This is People of the Book. We are looking at a book called The Devil and Webster. Very topical uh very topical book because it deals it's dealing with a protest on a university that gets out of hand. The core of the protest is a whole lot of students are protesting that their favorite lecturer was denied tenure. Happens to be a black American whose speciality is folklore uh, and uh, the legends of the rural south and the leader of the student protest is a very quiet and unassuming Palestinian who grew up in uh, in a refugee camp, won a scholarship to Webster University, and he is very, very involved in the activist life of a student. Now, the as I was saying, the, the, the head of the university, Naomi Roth, she's a Jewish woman, Her daughter chooses to study at Webster University as well, and her daughter becomes very involved in this protest. And during the almost four months of continual protest and antagonism on the campus between the administration and the students, there's acts of violence, there's acts of racism, there's uh, repeated calls for... um, the university to be more inclusive. And as a South African reader, you're looking at a bunch of students who are the most privileged people in the world. They're having education, which is so inclusive that there's a study in any possible half an identity that you could imagine. And you're wondering, why are they protesting? And there is a scene in the book between Naomi and a friend of hers, the Dean of Admission, which puts across this whole idea so clearly. I just want to read this. Naomi, it's, a kind, it's kind of horrible actually. My whole life has been organized around the principle of speaking truth to power. Now I can't speak. Their friend says, the problem isn't that you can't speak truth to power. The problem is that you are the power. You see that, right? You're the establishment. You're the man. Well, Naomi tried to laugh. Her head spun. I don't think so. I think so. The students are the ones trying to speak truth to you. That's what they think anyway. I can't believe this is a surprise. But it was. It was more than a surprise. It was the kind of terrible shock you push back against with every bit of your strength and then collapse beneath because the pure, cold sense of it is so very heavy. I'm on their side, Naomi said, without any conviction whatsoever. I've been open from the beginning. I've been available. Irrelevant, Francine said. Their job is to place themselves in opposition to authority. You are the authority, whether you embrace it or not. That you opt not to resist them makes no difference at all. They've barely paid attention to you. So this is 
really, if there's one passage in the whole book that really shouts out about student protests, this is the one. And so it very, very cleverly shows us the mindset of students protesting on a liberal arts university campus in America. But it's a timely, it's a timely, it's a timely novel because it's not just South Africa that is experiencing student protest on the campuses. It's worldwide. And to have an ah, uh, uh, to to have an uh, a, a, the ability to see into a very very first world educational system that they are grappling with similar things to what we are. Obviously, not fees must fall, but it's it's still protest, and it gives us a bit of an understanding behind all the protest that there is this need to challenge authority. And I think you find that in universities all around the world and across times from the 1800s all the way onwards. Universities are places, though they hotbeds of foment and of protest. So it's it's a very it's a very easy to read book. It's actually very very lightly written, but it's dealing with big topics. And as I mentioned, Jean Hanf Correlates, the author of the the Devil and Webster, knows how universities work. Uh, and a previous book of hers was at, uh, a film uh, was adapted into film. That was admission, and there's a lot about admissions in this book as well, and the the politics behind admissions, why universities play the admissions game. Uh, the high, the more people you turn down in America, uh, the higher up you rise in the uh, the league tables. So it becomes almost a competition in its own right to deny entry to university to as many people who apply, so that you look. That much more elite, that much more, that much more uh, deserving of your high league ratings. Now, the next book is in a similar vein, also very, 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 even lighter. But it's it's a book that I, a theme, a, genre, a theme that I'm seeing coming up quite a bit more um, in the books that are coming coming out. The book is called. Wonderful Feels Like This. It's by Sarah Lovestam. It's published by Ellen and Unwin. And it's a celebration of being a little bit odd, finding your people and the power of music to connect people together. For Steffi, going to school every day is an exercise in survival. She's never fit in with any of the girls in her group. She's viciously teased by the others in her class. The only way she can escape is through her music, especially jazz music. Now, Steffi is a girl with Cuban parents growing up in Sweden. So she obviously does stick out, and she is teased mercilessly. When Steffi hears her favorite jazz song playing through an open window of a retirement home, she decides to go in and introduce herself. The old man playing her favorite song is Alvar. When Alvar was a teenager in World War II, Sweden, he dreamed of being in a real jazz band. Then and now, Alvar's music, Alvar's escape is his music, especially jazz music. Through the unconventional friendship, Steffi comes to realize that she won't always feel alone. She can be a real musician just like Alvar. Can it be that the people least like us are the ones we need to help us tell our own stories. This is, it's a friendship between a young girl who's having a hard time in school. She's being teased because she looks different. And her friendship with Alvar, an old, a retired musician. 
And I've seen a few other books coming out this year that play on this relationship between the youth and the old. One of them is, I think it's called, um, it's Talking to Einstein. It's about a girl who phones the wrong number. She lives in New Jersey in America in the 1950s. And the man who picks up the phone at the end of the wrong number line is Einstein and he says Einstein can I help you and she says no I think I've got the wrong number and he says no you haven't and so it's created a fictional friendship just like in wonderful feels like this between a young young person and an older person who in their old age still have so much to contribute to the world and to young people now, the next two books I'm going to look at are very, very closely related, and that's why I've chosen to do them together. We are going into the field of neurology, study of the brain, how we think. The first book is called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, and it's by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach. And the second book is called How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. And both books are published by the same company. They're published by Macmillan. And they update us on how knowledge and how emotions work. The Knowledge Illusion examines the origins and consequences of our individual ignorance, exploring both the extent of it and the ingenious ways we overcome it. By recognizing that there are limits to understanding and that the mind is much more than in an individual brain, we can improve how we approach our most complex problems. Now, the authors of this book, The Knowledge Illusion, Stephen Sloman is a professor of cognition, linguistics, and psychology at Brown University in the U.S., where he has worked since 1992. He's also currently the editor-in-chief of the journal Cognition. And his co-author, Philip Fernbach, is a cognitive scientist and professor of marketing at the University of Colorado, of Colorado at Boulder. He writes regularly for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the BBC World News. In the introduction to their book, I wanted to get the essence of their book, the essence of the knowledge illusion. I'm going to read to you from their introduction. This is, the book's called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. The human mind is both genius and pathetic, brilliant and idiotic. People are capable of the most remarkable feats. We went from discovering the atomic nucleus in 1911 to megaton nuclear weapons in just over 40 years. We have mastered fire, created democratic institutions, stood on the moon, and developed genetically modified tomatoes. And yet we are equally capable of the most remarkable demonstrations of hubris and foolhardiness. Each of us is error-prone sometimes irrational and often ignorant. It is incredible that humans are capable of building thermonuclear bombs. It is equally incredible that humans do in fact build thermonuclear bombs. It is incredible that we have developed governance systems and economies that provide the comforts of modern life, even though most of us have only a vague sense of how those systems work. And yet, human society works amazingly well. How is it that people can simultaneously bowl us over with the ingenuity 
and disappoint us with their ignorance. How have we mastered so much despite how limited our understanding often is? These are questions that we will try to answer in this book. Thinking as a collective action. The field of cognitive science emerged in the 1950s in a noble effort to understand the workings of the human mind, the most extraordinary phenomenon in the known universe. How is thinking possible? What goes on inside the head that allows sentient beings to do math, understand their mortality, act virtuously and sometimes selflessly, and even do simple things like eat with a knife and fork? No machine and probably no other animal is capable of these acts. We have spent our careers studying the mind. Stephen Sloman is a professor of cognitive science who has been researching this topic for over 25 years. Philip Fernbach has a doctorate in cognitive science and is a professor of marketing whose work focuses on trying to understand how people make decisions. We have seen directly that the history of cognitive science has not been a steady march towards a conception of how the human mind is capable of amazing feats. Rather, a good chunk of what cognitive science has taught us over the years is what individual humans can't do, what our limitations are. The human mind is not like a desktop computer designed to hold reams of information. The mind is a flexible problem solver, able to extract only the most useful information to guide decisions in new situations. As a consequence, individuals store very little detailed information about the world in their heads. In that sense, people are like bees and society a beehive. Our intelligence resides not in individual brains but in the collective mind. To function, individuals rely not only on knowledge stored within our skulls, but also on knowledge stored elsewhere, in our bodies, in the environment, and especially in other people. When you put it all together, human thought is incredibly impressive, but it is a product of a community, not of an individual alone. I'm reading from the introduction to the knowledge illusion, Why We Never Think Alone, by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach. Nobody could be a master of every facet of, ev of even a single thing. Even the simplest objects require complex webs of knowledge to manufacture and use. How do these work? Most people can't tell you how a coffee maker works, how glue holds paper together, or how the focus works on a camera, let alone something as complex as love. Our point is not that people are ignorant. It's that people are more ignorant than they think they are. We all suffer to a greater or lesser extent from an illusion of understanding, an illusion that we understand how things work when in fact our understanding is meager. In the book they quote from a research project where students at university were asked to describe, explain how a zip works or how a toilet, a flushing toilet works. And before they were asked to gauge their knowledge of this, then they had to write down, and then they were asked afterwards to gauge how well they actually did know how a zip or a flush toilet worked. Before, at the very the first time they were asked to gauge their, their, their ability to explain these things, most students put down that they have a very good ability. But once they'd gone through the process and they had seen their limited knowledge of things that they use every single day, they were much more aware of how 
measly their knowledge of the simplest things actually was. Understanding the mind can offer us improved ways of approaching our most complex problems. Recognizing the limits of our understanding should make us more humble, opening our minds to other people's ideas and ways of thinking. It offers lessons about how to avoid things like bad financial decisions. It can enable us to improve our political system and help us assess how much reliance we should have on experts versus how much decision-making power should be given to individual voters. This book has been written at a time of immense polarization on the American political scene. Liberals and conservatives find each other's views repugnant, and as a result, Democrats and Republicans cannot find common ground or compromise. The U.S. Congress is unable to pass even benign legislation. The Senate is preventing the administration from making important judicial and administrative appointments. The reason for this gridlock is that both politicians and voters don't realize how little they understand. Whenever an issue is important enough for public debate, it is also complicated enough to be difficult to understand. Reading a newspaper article or two just isn't enough. Social issues have complex causes and unpredictable consequences. It takes a lot of expertise to really understand the implications of a position, and even expertise may not be enough. Conflicts between, say, police and minorities cannot be reduced to simple fear or racism or even to both. Along with fear and racism, conflicts arise because of individual experiences and expectations, because of the dynamics of a specific situation, because of misguided training and misunderstandings. Complexity abounds. If everybody understood this, our society would likely be less polarized. Instead of appreciating complexity, people tend to affiliate with one or another social dogma. Because our knowledge is enmeshed with that of others, the community shapes our beliefs and attitudes. It is so hard to reject an opinion shared by our peers that too often we don't even try to evaluate claims based on their merits. We let our group do our thinking for us. Appreciating the communal nature of knowledge should make us more realistic about what's determining our beliefs and values. This would improve how we make decisions. We all make decisions that we are not proud of. These include mistakes like failing to save for retirement as well as regrets like giving into the tempta- like giving into temptation when we really should know better. We'll see that we can deploy the community of knowledge to help people overcome their natural limitations in ways that increase the well-being of the community at large. This is the, in the introduction to the book called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And it's a very topical book to read at this current moment with all the talk about fake news, groupthink to be more aware of the the intellectual dynamics but behind the knowledge that we think we hold in our brains. So that's the, the knowledge illusion, why we never think alone by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach, published by Macmillan, and it's available in shops now. We'll get to the next book, How Emotions Are Made, continuing our brain theme straight after this ad break. <laughs> Stay relevant and up-to-date. This is 101.9 High FM. Before we get into how emotions are made, all my listeners over here, we're going to give you an opportunity to win a a book. Uh, This is a thriller. 
It's called The Girl Before. It's by J.P. Delaney. It's published by Quirkus. Enter the world of one Folgate Street and be gripped by the next generation of thriller. Jane stumbles on the rental opportunity of a lifetime, the chance to live in a beautiful, ultra-minimalist house designed by an enigmatic architect on condition she abides by a long list of exacting rules. After moving in, she discovers that a previous tenant, Emma, met a mysterious death there and starts to wonder if her own story will be a rerun of The Girl Before. As twist after twist catches the reader off guard, Emma's past and Jane's present become inexorably entwined in this tense, page-turning portrayal of psychological obsession. This book has had rights sold in 32 countries, and the film rights have been sold to Universal Pictures after a competitive auction with Ron Howard to direct and Brian Grazer and Michael DeLuca to produce. The book is called The Girl Before. It's by J.P. Delaney. And to win it, all you need to do is SMS or WhatsApp us your name and the title of the book that you're currently reading. Uh, SMS uh, line is 34519 and our WhatsApp number is 0621482374. So the first person through with their name and the title of their book that they're reading, SMS us on 34519 or WhatsApp us on 0621482374. Now back to our brainy theme. We've looked at The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone by Stephen Sloman and Philip Fernbach. Now we're going to turn our attention to Lisa Feldman Barrett's book, How Emotions Are Made, The Secret Life of the Brain. Now about the author, Lisa Feldman Barrett is a university distinguished professor of psychology at Northeastern University with appointments at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital in Psychiatry and Radiology. She received an NIH Director's Pioneer Award for her research on emotion in the brain. She is also the co-author of both The Psychological Construction of Emotion and The Handbook of Emotions. She lives in Boston. Now this book is the latest neurological research that's available <coughs> about emotions. And she starts off with an introduction that really puts her book and <coughs> sorry <coughs> that really puts her book <coughs> in the stream of <coughs> research. Sorry, I just got some <clears throat> in the stream of research that <clears throat> brings us up to date with how emotions work. So I'm going to read from her introduction, <clears throat> and this is how she presents her this is how she presents herself. The time honored story of emotion goes something like this. We have emotions built in from birth. They are distinct, recognizable phenomena inside us. When something happens in the world, whether it's a gunshot or a flirtatious glance, our emotions come on quickly and automatically, as if someone has flipped a switch. We broadcast emotions on our faces by way of smiles, frowns, scowls, and other characteristic expressions that anyone can easily recognize. Our voices reveal our emotions 
through laughter, shouts and cries. Our body posture betrays our feelings with every gesture and slouch. Modern science has an account that fits the story, which I call the classical view of emotion. The classical view of emotion holds that we have many emotions, emotional circuits in our brains, and each is said to cause a distinct set of changes that is a fingerprint. Perhaps an annoying co-worker triggers your anger neurons, so your blood pressure rises, you scowl, yell, and feel the heat of fury. Or an alarming news story triggers your fear neurons, so your heart races, you freeze, you feel a flash of dread. Because we experience happy, anger, surprise, and other emotions as clear and identifiable states of beings, it seems reasonable to assume that each emotion has a defining underlining pattern in the brain and body. Emotions are thus thought to be a kind of brute reflex, very often at odds with our rationality. The primitive part of your brain wants to tell your wants to tell your boss he's an idiot, but your deliberative side knows that doing so would get you fired, so you restrain yourself. This kind of, intern- this kind of internal battle between emotion and reason is one of the great narratives of Western civilization. It helps define you as human. Without rationality, you are merely an emotional beast. This view of emotions has been around for millennia in various forms. Plato believed a version of it, so did Hippocrates, Aristotle, and Buddha, René Descartes, Sigmund Freud, and Charles Darwin. Today, prominent thinkers such as Steven Pinker, Paul L. Ekman, and the Dalai Lama also offer us up descriptions of emotions rooted in the classical view. The classical view is found in virtually every introductory college textbook on psychology and in magazines and newspaper articles that discuss emotion. Preschools throughout the world hang posters displaying the smiles, frowns and pouts that are supposed to be universal language of the face for recognizing emotions. The classical view is also entrenched in our culture. Sesame Street teaches children that emotions are distinct things inside us, seeking expression in the face and body, as does the Pixar movie Inside Out. Companies like Activa and Real Eyes offer to help businesses detect their customers' feelings through emotional analytics. We're reading from the introduction to How Emotions Are Made by Lisa Feldman Barrett, and we'll continue this discussion on emotions and then leave the traditional and look at her proposed model of emotions straight after this ad break. A frequency like no other. 101.9 High FM. This is Stephen Kravitz. I wasn't choked up with emotion before. I had something caught in my throat. Uh, we're looking at how emotions are made. The Secret Life of the Brain by Lisa Feldman Barrett. She's explained to us in her introduction the traditional way of viewing emotions. More significantly, the classical view of emotion is embedded into our society, into our social institutions. The American legal system assumes that emotions are part of an inherent animal nature and cause us to perform foolish and even violent acts unless we control them through our rational thoughts. In medicine, researchers study the health effects of anger, supposing that there is a single pattern of change in the body that goes by that name. And yet, 
despite the distinguished intellectual pedigree of the classical view of emotion, and despite its immense influence in our culture and society, there is abundant scientific evidence that this view cannot possibly be true. Even after a century of effort, scientific research has not revealed a consistent physical fingerprint for even a single emotion. To be sure, hundreds of experiments offer some evidence for the classical view, but hundreds more cast the evidence into doubt. The only reasonable scientific conclusion, in my opinion, is that emotions are not what we typically think they are. So what are they? When scientists set aside the classical view and just look at the data, a radically different explanation for emotion comes to light. In short, we find that your emotions are not built in, but made from more basic parts. They are not universal, but vary from culture to culture. They are not triggered. You create them. They emerge as a combination of the physical properties of your body, a flexible brain that wires itself to whatever environment it develops in, and your culture and upbringing, which provide that environment. Emotions are real, but not in the objective sense that molecules or neurons are real. They are real in the same sense that money is real. That is, hardly an illusion, but a product of human agreement. This view I call the theory of constructed emotion. It offers a very different interpretation of the events that we experience. I feel sadness in a particular moment because I have been raised in a certain culture. I learned long ago that sadness is something that may occur when certain bodily feelings coincide with terrible loss. Using bits and pieces of past experience, such as my knowledge of shootings and my previous sadness about them, my brain rapidly predicted what my body should do to cope in cases of a tragedy. Its predictions caused my thumping heart, my flushed face, and the knots in my stomach. They directed me to cry, an action that would calm my nervous system, and they made the resulting sensations meaningful as an instance of sadness. In this manner, my brain constructed my experience of emotion. My particular movements and sensations were not a fingerprint for sadness. With different predictions... My skin would cool rather than flush, and my stomach would remain unknotted. Yet my brain could still transform the resulting sensations into sadness. Not only that, but my original thumping heart, flushed face, knotted stomach, and tears could become meaningful as a different emotion, such as anger or fear, instead of sadness. Or in a very different situation, like a wedding celebration, those same sensations could become joy or gratitude. If this explanation doesn't make complete sense or even sounds counterintuitive so far, believe me, I'm right there with you. The classical view of emotion remains compelling despite the evidence against it, precisely because it is intuitive. The theory of constructed emotion answers such questions that traditional view of emotion answer differently. It's a different theory of human nature that helps you see yourself and others in a new and more scientifically justified light. The theory of constructed emotion might not fit the way you typically experience emotion and in fact may well violate your deepest beliefs about how the mind works. 
and why we act and feel the way we do. But the theory consistently predicts and explains the scientific evidence on emotion, including plenty of evidence that the classical view struggles to make sense of. This is the introduction to how emotions are made, the secret life of the brain by Professor Lisa Feldman Barrett. She has spent her life studying emotions, and here she's distilled all of that and other people's research into a very accessible book that explains our emotions to us. So if you are interested in how the brain works, the two books we've looked at, The Knowledge Illusion and How Emotions Are Made, will address that. And just before I go, I just want to mention a book I've just received, it, but it is so topical. It's called Wild Ride, Inside Uber's Quest for World Domination. It's by Adam Lashinsky, who is a senior writer at, I think it's Fortune magazine. Just this week, Travis Kalanick, the, uh, the, the founder and the former CEO of Uber, resigned his position. This is the story of Uber. I think it's the first Uber book to come out and hit the markets. It's called Wild Ride, and it's the story behind the business headlines of the current, uh, the current story at Uber. So that's, it's called Wild Ride as well. We'll review that in a few weeks' time. And until, until we're back in CTR at uh, Chai FM, people of the book, this is Stephen Krabbers wishing you good Shabbos and keep reading.